0: Okay,
1: I guess it's now now it's starting, so now I can get it. I guess to start, to stop.
0: We could do a I'd quick be... video on the doubt, and then and then go to the other stuff.
1: Oh, right. Well, maybe Peter can, uh, Parker can use it then. Uh, we can do a short one. Um, so, yes, you're talking about the particular doubt that is can be phrased as things are too good to be true now yes which is uh, something that um, underlying that is actually pointing out the fact that we have gotten used to so much dukkha so much of the time yeah but now we go back and reflect and we can say hey things have been not only are they nice right now but they've been nice for quite a while now. <laughs>
0: Sure, sure, totally. Yeah, the quite a while is something that I haven't really pondered that much, but you're totally right. It's always been okay. It's just it's taken me a yeah. while to
1: figure that out. <laughs> mm-hmm. So now that you're figuring that out, there's still that lingering doubt about, well, what happens when something goes wrong? And that feeling and thought come up. Guess What? That's a doubt. And doubt's one of the hindrances. That's just another hindrance that comes up.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, no, totally. Yeah, it's and and it's yeah, it's not that bad anymore. I mean, you're rewiring the brain is what you're doing, right? So as mm -hmm. you keep having the wholesome thoughts, the positive thoughts, you keep throwing out the doubt, it gets better and better. But you know, it does still come up sometimes.
1: Right. And so uh, this is now part of the new skill level is to recognize that even those kind of thoughts prevent us from actually enjoying how really good it is because we're doubting that it can't be this good. Right. Right. So that's that's just yet another hindrance. But now it's at a much more subtle level, much, much more subtle but it's there as a hindrance and so that means we have to have that kind of subtlety of uh mind for investigation to investigate that and says, oh yeah right that's just another doubt i've seen that before (laughs) been there done that (laughs) never mind what were we doing oh that's right i was having a ball
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah totally um yeah, it's amazing. So the
1: layers of doubt will come off like that. In the beginning, remember how heavy the doubt was—in the sense of, "Oh no, who in the world can I get to fix this broken system?"
0: Right.
1: Maybe I can get a politician or a Jesus or maybe a daddy or a rabbi. I need he- help. You know, right. that's a level of doubt that's really painful, and that's where we all start off. Oh. And so then the doubt re- starts to eradicate itself in the sense of you get the idea that I can do this. Right. But now you're at that level of well, dang, I'm doing this. Can I keep going? And the answer right. is, sure you can.
0: Yeah, of course. It's it's first of all <laughs> you can do it in this moment, right now. You know, forget the whole future thoughts of the future, thoughts of the past. But the second is if you can do it right now, you can keep doing it right now, then it's going to work out in the future. And it's going to be even better because you build that comma, you build that momentum, and then it just gets better and better.
1: Right. You can call it a momentum if you like. I would call it a skill, but both of them are correct in a way. Sure. Yeah, that once we get things going, it tends to go in that direction.
0: Right. And and it's funny because then I'll think I'll get like a, a text I don't like or something like that from someone. But, but it's like the responding with the Dhamma is the only obvious thing to do, you know? And it's like, why would I not want to respond with the Dhamma? You know, why would I not want to do that? Like there, it doesn't make any sense, you know? And so I respond with the Dhamma and then it's fine, you know? And, and, and so I'll think like, oh, what if I don't do that? And it's like, well, it's obvious not to do that. It's like, why would I hit my head against the wall when I really don't need to do that? There's no reason,
1: you know? And,
0: and it's the same kind of thing, you know?
1: (coughs) Funny that analogy hitting one's head against the wall, a, uh, uh, a student, you know, has used that also, that phraseology of mm-hmm. banging our head against the wall. Um, I don't think that any of us are taught to do that specifically, but it that that phrase has made it into our language. Right. Uh Possibly a a more uh, accurate description would be feeling like that we are uh, required or somehow must move an object that will not budge. Sure. Like beating our head against the wall in the sense that the wall, normally, walls don't budge. Okay. And in the But in this context, we're talking about a mind. And minds do budge. Right. They can. You can move them along. But sometimes it feels like that right now it's hit a a bump or a rock or some resistance. And now it doesn't budge as easy as it used to budge. It feels like it's now become unmovable.
0: Sure. Totally. Totally. And um, that's also
1: yeah. the way that it, uh, when we have that thought of, oh no, things have gotten too good. They couldn't possibly be this good. Oh no, what's bad <laughs> going to happen? You know, those kind of thoughts kind of get in the way and prevent us from being able to continue to move that mind along.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Even if it's just for a little bit, like, you know, just a moment, it still mm-hmm. does. Um, and it's, well, until too. we wake
1: up to it, until we wake yeah. up to that thought. Totally.
0: Just, and just another
1: hindrance.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting too. So, you know, in some of my close relationships, I've I've had the thought, you know, which which I consider unwholesome, that um, oh, am I just being so nice just to take care of their feelings, or am I doing it for my own, you know, because this is what I want to do? And then the obvious, you know, because the taking care of their feelings, that's kind of codependency, right? Uh, which is unwholesome, you know. Um, But the obvious answer is I'm doing it because I like to do it and it feels good to do it. And so why wouldn't I want to do it? You know, so it's good for me and it's also good for them, but it's really good for me.
1: You know, well, then it's both. Then it's a win win. This is what you would call a symbiotic relationship then that is healthy. In humans, they have symbiosis that is unhealthy in the sense that both of the people would be better off without each other. An example of that is the the woman who is um, the wife of an alcoholic.
0: Right. Codependent situation. She, and,
1: yep. and that she is dependent upon him being an alcoholic because her dad was an alcoholic. She grew up. Tending with an alcoholic, and so she's made her husband into an alcoholic. That the likelihood right. that he'd stop drinking if he'd leave her, but they, but she's an enabler. So that's the symbiotic relationship that's downright dangerous.
0: Yes, and and I've been in that before, so I know it, and so that's why I would have that doubt about that. Is but not like, oh, all my-
1: symbiotic relationships are uh, problematic. That that in fact the the tender infant really needs a mommy to take care of it, and my and while that's happening, all the ladies in the house are gushing over that brand new baby, and so everybody's getting you know joy out of that. Right. That's all. Okay. But that's another symbiotic relationship. And some of right. them are wholesome and some of them are unwholesome selves. So going back to the question that you had about dealing with other people, that means now that you can either be in a symbiotic relationship with them that is wholesome or unwholesome. Your choice. And if right. you choose wholesome on your side, it's more than likely, but not necessarily. And in fact, you can great take great delight out of hurting them. Hmm. This is the stance of the bully. He takes delight in harming other people because now he's got peop- more other people feeling worse than he does. Right. So he wins the bad feeling contest because he doesn't have to feel as bad as they do because he's abused them into bad feelings. Okay, so that's an example of a symbiotic relationship. That's wholesome. And that's completely unwholesome. But you can actually spread joy in a wholesome way, so that people gain joy from it, and that's a very wholesome situation. That's this uh, a symbiosis that is friendly, healthy, wholesome, and is uh, let's say um, praised by the wise. Yes,
0: and and that's where you know seclusion comes in, as well as you know the the psychotherapy literature would say boundaries, right? the importance of boundaries and keeping up boundaries and seclusion is kind of a boundary in a sense.
1: What a boundary.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, like the Himalayas, like we were talking about earlier, like the Himalayas,
1: exactly. Yeah, some boundaries are really, really big deals.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, And, and that's what's I think. I think that's one of the things that's so healthy about talking with yourself and people like you is, you know, you have that seclusion, right? So I know. I can have a little pity party and it's not going to affect you, you know, and that's great. You know, that's, that's healthy boundaries at work right there.
1: You know, that's reminding me of something that uh, just happened recently in a conversation basically with, with Parker is that I was um, mentioning to him about Uh, In the uh, dialogue on uh, Guru Viking with um, Dan, that Dan mentioned that he had been in EMT, uh, emergency medical, um, and that he also does what he has called, I think, crisis intervention in the sense of meditators getting themselves into a crisis in their meditation. Okay, which I've had a pretty bad one. (laughs) All right, well. um, What I was talking to Parker about was that just recently I. I looked at the clock and uh, to see what the time was and from uh, the time that the caller called in a great big crisis boo hoo, oh poor me. Into uh, gales of laughter. And complete relief, seven minutes. Wow. Wow. That's great. Seven minutes out of complete disaster pity party into peals of laughter and relief. Seven minutes. I love it. Love it. Well, only because the student is an old student so that he actually understands what's happening, but this is the power of, uh, it's not. The power of positive thinking It's the power of wholesome thinking Which is different than Necessarily I, positive Yes,
0: and and I sent you some stuff About that, which I thought was mm-hmm. very interesting um, And did you read The article about Norman Vincent Peale And Donald Trump? Uh,
1: no, I didn't But I have actually read Donald Trump and I have read Norman Vincent Peale 30 and 40 years ago Well, yeah, 34 uh Trump and forty for or fifty for Peel.
0: Well, what's interesting is Peel was the Trump family pastor. So Trump spent his whole youth going to Norman Vincent Peel's church, and that's what that article is about. And he married the Trump in both of his first two marriages before he died. And um and he was a very prominent person in that church. And I think it's hilarious because it really emphasizes that difference between the positive, positive thinking and wholesome thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Because this guy, like like one thing that is, you know, maybe admirable about Trump is that he never gives up ever, and he constantly does, bounces back, no matter what, he withstands so much criticism. He doesn't take any of it to heart ever, which is kind of bad, actually, because <laughs> maybe if he did, it would help him, but... <laughs> Um, but nonetheless, well, that's the, the distinction
1: between the yeah. power versus the wholesome. Mm-hmm. And that's a very good distinction that you're making, by the way, because I don't think that a lot of people when they uh, even hear about Buddhism and uh, wholesome thoughts, they automatically assume that means positive thoughts. Right. And so maybe we should take a moment at least to define what that means. Why is, uh, uh, po- What kind of positive thought is unwholesome? Sure. Okay, what kind of thought is positive, yes, but unwholesome would be the kind of positive thought that's not true. It's an uh, affirmation. It's a lust. It's a want. It's a desire. Okay. It's not real. Okay, a wholesome thought is going to be um, real first, and positive second. Mm. Where a positive is going to be positive first, and real or not, irrelevant.
0: And this is where the sati comes in. And
2: that's
0: why sati is so important, because sati shows you what's really going on. And so if you don't have sati, and you're just thinking positively (laughs) all the time, you know, you're gonna just think think positive thought, thoughts that are incorrect and if it's incorrect, it's against the Dhamma because the Dhamma is nature. Mm-hmm. And so then it's going to be unwholesome.
1: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so with Norman Vincent Peale's book on the power of positive thinking, it does have some power. That in fact, uh, the power of positive thinking um in one regard is in fact going to create a bully.
2: Hmm.
0: And that in explains the, also the churches, the, the evangelical churches that preach this stuff. You know, many times the pastor is a bully and that comes out, you know, and he, he's funny well, thing
1: about that isn't it? Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. Oh.
1: So the power of positive thinking creates bullies. Yeah which yeah.
0: hmm. is very interesting and it's interesting too because I've gone through my own phases of trying that stuff out and it's never gone well for me you know it's never been a positive
1: experience. yeah but it was always somebody else's fault you got to stay oh, positive yeah. about this
2: yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's been interesting because like this has been one of my discoveries is that actually part one one type of wholesome thought is actually being able to accept a negative thing and then work with that thing. You know, Mm -hmm. so, for example, like my father, like one uh, area of rupture in my relationship with him earlier on is that I would try to do the power of positive thinking all the time, but he loves negative news and negative articles. And so it would really just kind of exhaust me thinking that this is a problem. It was never a problem for me, but thinking it was because it was interrupting my little positivity party. And then I get all this stuff about COVID and this and that, you know, and, and then it's like, screw you, like, I don't need this right now, you know, and that was kind of my approach for a long time. And now my approach is just to talk with them about it and and know uh-huh. that it can't affect me. It's it just is, you know, it's just part of life, you know, and, and I talk with them about it, then I bring in some Dama and then it's much more wholesome, you know, um, uh-huh. even if, if it's a bad news story.
1: Well, now, here's something very interesting that we could uh, perhaps fill in the, uh, the blanks with is, is that he likes negative news because that proves to him that he's okay because he's right. better than that stuff, okay? In a way, he's even more advanced as being a bully than you were even trying to become by practicing positive thinking. Sure. He's an advanced bully. He's got it down perfectly. That's why he likes such bad news is because that helps him prove that he's okay. He doesn't even have to go around hurting other people. He just sits there just watching how bad they hurt and say, ha ha. (laughs) Right.
0: Yeah, like he's been really fascinated with like the con artist stories of the past ten years, like Bernie Madoff, Elizabeth Holmes and Adam Newman and you know, all of these types of stories. And so he Yeah, sends Bernie so Madoff with what? it.
1: That's yeah, a a joke. Yeah. <laughs> Bernie Madoff with what? <laughs>
0: yeah, sixty five billion and a life sentence, two life sentences and, a,
1: and two stuff. life sentences, right?
0: <laughs> and a couple of dead kids too, which is the worst part of that, but or one of the worst parts of that.
1: Um, mm-hmm.
0: but yeah, and that's you know, a big
1: tragedy for your dad to feel really good about.
0: Yeah. I mean, he does seem to be genuinely concerned about it, but he keeps bringing it up again and again and again. And, and it would kind of wear me out. Cause it's like, dad, like I'm just trying to have a good time here and you keep bringing <laughs> this up. And so I, you know, I would send him in the past, like, Stuff like, please don't send me this kind of thing anymore. Like, I'm not interested in this. You know, please don't send it. And now, I'll just talk with him about it. And then change uh-huh. the subject to something else, you know. Um, or make the subject more of a wholesome subject. And, and then it becomes more interesting. Like, for example, you know, he's been really into this Theranos story. And um, are you familiar with Theranos? That whole... Mm-hmm. So, this woman, Elizabeth Holmes... Claims she had a blood test. Oh yes, uh, uh,
1: yes. Now I yeah. know. Right. Okay. Yeah.
0: And so, anyway, so he's been very fascinated by this, and we had a really interesting discussion the other day, where, um, where I started talking with him about how beauty isn't necessarily good. You know how beauty, because uh, she's a beautiful woman, she had a beautiful pr- idea, beautiful product. That she or that she said it was a beautiful product. It was actually a pile of crap. But you know the whole thing sounded beautiful, right? Um, and I was talking to him about how beauty is neither good nor bad, you know, beauty is something that many people use, however, in order to manipulate or abuse like Jeffrey Epstein, right? Like he had all these beautiful women around him all the time. And part of that was for his own ego and for his own enjoyment or whatever. But part of it also was to manipulate and get Mm -hmm. money from very wealthy people, you know, and same with Trump, you know, like he loved showing off like his supermodel wives and his big properties and all of this. And, and my dad hates Trump now after COVID, you know, after being a supporter for a while. Um, and, um, and so that resonated, too. And it was a really interesting discussion about how beauty and the Nazis even like the Nazi propaganda is all these beautiful people, you know, like uh, beautiful, blonde, tall, like I took a class in philosophy of art. And the, the philosophers teaching that class, we had a section on the Nazis and their use of beauty and how they used the beauty to justify what they were doing, you know, to say, look how beautiful these people are, look how beautiful the society is, when in fact it was being used to mask the worst evil possible, you know? And um, and so I wrote an essay on that called Beauty and Evil. And, um, and I thought it was really interesting. That doesn't mean beauty is bad, you know, beauty can be very good, you know, but, you know, you have to watch it. You have to have a little extra sati when you're dealing with beauty.
1: Well, beauty is, in fact, built right into the Petitio samuppada
2: hmm.
1: There is a point there, and that is, is that when we see an object and it gives a pleasant sensation, that's the beauty. The problem with beauty is is that beauty is then, um, let us say that we have words to describe this thing that we would call attractive mm. or that it is enticing or it, it has the quality of that we want it. It draws right. us to it because we like it. So there's right. also that aspect of beauty. Yes. Okay, so that it has the quality of pleasure, but it also has the quality of attraction. That's why they call the girl attractive rather than beautiful. Mm, that in fact, both. beautiful is nice, but attractive is even better in the sense that that's what she's really going for. How beautiful does she have to be to be attractive? Not very. Right. She doesn't have to overdo it. Totally. So attractive is in fact the whole point of getting something uh, to be desirable so that it's wanted. Mm. That's actually instinctual. So beauty, and they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, actually beauty is in the desire. Mm. After the eyes, the beauty is in the brain of the beholder, not in the eye. The eye is just the eye. I mean, all the eye does is is uh, shape, colors, form, and movement. That's about the only thing that the eye can do. All of the beauty and all of that kind of stuff, that's um, a quality that is uh, manufactured uh, deeper in the mind than, than the eye itself. This is actually what contacts us is an internal representation. Mm. So two people could look at the same art object. Let's say that two people from different classes and whatnot walk into the same museum at the same time or staring at the same uh, piece of artwork on the wall at the same time. And they get two different reactions. Why is that? Obviously, the beauty is not in that artwork that they're looking at. Right. And that's, the beauty, that's part of uh, yeah the yeah. beauty is in the in is uh, what they brought into the room with them
0: yes and that's part of the the whole challenge that postmodern art poses to people you know as they're trying to say that oh this piece of blo- this block of wood on a black canvas is beautiful you know that's what they're trying to say and it's mm-hmm. really not you know but they're trying to make that assertion and because there's so many postmodern artists trying to do that And there's so many art critics that are backing them up on that. They're making a case. And it's a really interesting case because, you know, it is. Well, they can't just make
1: art. Art's worthless. No, they have to make it desirable. Yes. And so they try at least to make it beautiful because if they can make it beautiful, then maybe they can make it desirable. And if it's desirable, hot dog, we got to sail.
0: Right. Right. And so they build these movements. You know, like Andy Warhol. You mm-hmm. know, like like just the Campbell's soup can. And can I think- you believe it?
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> can you believe that? I cannot believe that. You yeah. you know that if that piece of art had been run across in some uh, body's basement in in Manhattan or Brooklyn a hundred years from now, they would have just passed through it. Oh, the, yeah. Never mind. And given it at what one second's notice is about all that canvas is worth.
0: Sure, sure. No, totally. And what's and funny about you that talk though, it up? <laughs> right, right. And he was a genius at that. Like he was one of the best people in the world when it came to talking up his art. And so he was able to make a lot of money doing that <clears throat> doing that. But he also had a very ironic sensibility about it. Like he I think he was a really like a mischief maker. You know, like he called his art gallery or his the his studio, he called it the factory. He said this is industrial art. You know all of these things and he was very um you, you know trying to just poke poke in the eye of like our society in so many ways so i think it was brilliant but he was a miserable guy unfortunately and that's why he killed himself you know but um but it was brilliant you know what he was doing
1: well um if if anything then what you said was is that he was pointing out that uh, the beauty that people see he could see that it was not beautiful and right. maybe he came to a point in his life when he could see no beauty anywhere yeah i think he did i think he did okay and so what else is left but uh, the bustle or bet. the blade
0: either the abyss or the great joy of life and he unfortunately saw just the abyss
1: Exactly. So the because if it's all equal, then one I'd see everything equally beautiful. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. Totally. And and you know I have because- to thank my dad for bringing up this topic because it's a really interesting topic for us and also for him and I. You know. Mm-hmm. And so I can take these things he brings up. Like another one, I talked with Keyshawn about this the other day. We had a really nice little chat. You know, my dad brought up. You know, football, the, the Jacksonville Jaguars are zero and 20 now. You know, it's the longest undefeated. I mean, excuse me, longest defeated streak, longest losing streak in history. And I no, said,
1: they had a much longer uh, losing streak between 500 B.C. and 1000 A.D. They lost 1500 years in a row. <laughs> they didn't even compete. They were so bad at it.
0: <laughs> well, it's funny So what I said to my dad. When he brought this up, I said, oh, that's great (laughs) that they have that because when they win a game, it's going to be so nice, so nice for them. You know, it's going to be so wonderful when they finally win. And I said, I think it's better to be in that position than to be in the 16-0 like the New England Patriots were in 2007
1: because of all the stress
0: that would bring.
1: You know, what a stress it is. You've got to keep doing it. You've got to keep doing it. You got to keep doing it you can not let your guard down. You've got a, a trophy to defend. Yeah, right. that's a lot of and,
0: pressure. Yeah, and then one thing he said is, well, maybe the best thing is 8-8. Eight and eight. And I said, I think either 8-8 eight and eight or a little bit above that, so you still have a chance at the playoffs. And then, you know, you still have a sense of possibility, but you don't have all that pressure. And the, the example I gave was the New York Giants in 2007 who beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl, you know, who were undefeated, right? But the Giants were having a great time because they were 10 and 6. They were the worst team statistically ever to go to the Super Bowl, you know. And they started winning all their road games. And then they were going to the playoffs, and it was all road games. They were wild card. They were just winning them all. They were having a great time. So when they came into the Super Bowl, this attitude of play of, oh, we're having a great time right now. When the Patriots came in with this attitude of "Oh shit, we better not lose the Super Bowl because we're undefeated and it would look really bad," and then who wins? The playful guys, mm-hmm. the the more I wouldn't call them Dama guys, but the more mm-hmm. Dama esque guys, you know?
1: mm-hmm. Yes, that's um, uh, that's the uh, a lesson is hard to teach about. Um, I think it was Eno. Uh, what was your friend who had called? This is the issue that he was raising. He oh, was Ethan. saying, "Oh, if I, yeah, Ethan, if I become happy, then I won't do anything." Right. No, well, if great. you're happy, you can actually go win the game. Then, when you're unhappy because you're trying to defend a title or the pressure is on, you're not likely to do as well. But when you're totally. really enjoying the game, then you got a chance of winning the game.
0: Totally hundred percent. And that's how they won. They were really enjoying it. And Mm -hmm. it's funny, too, because, you know, Eli Manning's brother, Peyton Manning, is like Tom Brady. He's one of these guys that, you know, everything had to be perfect all the time. hundred percent. But but even if you actually look at pictures of their wives, Eli Manning is the more attractive wife. And they both have the same amount of Super Bowl (laughs) rings. And one guy was having more fun and the other guy had a stick up his butt the whole time. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, that's basically the choice that um, people don't even know that they have to make within the Dhamma. Mm -hmm. They they don't understand they have a choice. So this is what the real Dhamma is all about, is to recognize that we have a choice here. We can choose what we want to do, but we have to wake up over and over again because otherwise we'll go back to the default. Whatever the old default was, that's the way that we will normally choose the next moment until we wake up enough to start changing that default.
0: Right, and that's the reverse square law. You know, know, the previous (laughs) moment is much more important than the ones in the past. And uh, that's very helpful. That's something I've thought about a lot, you know. Is and, and that gets back to the doubt, you know, which is, you know, if, if the last moments were all so good, so why not this one too, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. But all of those layers of doubt will come off um, mm-hmm. if you can pick them up as just oh, there's just another layer of doubt. Mm-hmm. That's just there, there. It is again. I see that because then sure. it's easy enough to deal with. Sure. That's the part that going back to that conversation about crisis intervention, where you've got people who are meditating, going to a Dhamma teacher who is trained in crisis intervention, and they can have hour long pity party or more. Right because they really see a crisis as a crisis rather than just a momentary absent-mindedness. The crisis is just having the thought over and over again, and if we can wake up to that thought, we can start having that thought, and now we don't have a crisis anymore. That's all sure. there is to it. <laughs> sure. uh, crisis yeah. intervention then is to stop the crisis. <laughs> That's all there is to it.
0: Right. And it's so funny because I was talking to my girlfriend about something like this today where she brought up, she said, you're so positive all the time. And this relates back to our earlier conversation about positivity. And she said, like, you know, I can learn from that. You know, like, I need to be more like that. But then she made a joke. She said, like, I think you're so positive that if someone got robbed in front of you, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd just be completely fine with it. And I said, yeah, you know, I'd be really nice to the person that got robbed, but I'd also call the police. On the robber <laughs> you know, and kind compassionate person who's robbed, help them however I can, you know, and then call the pol- and call the police too
1: you know mm-hmm. um, and, and that- the next thing I'd do is take the money out of the wallet and put it in my shoe <laughs> 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 why because this is a tough neighborhood I'm in right now. <laughs>
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: Thank you, Mr. Robbery Victim, for proving to me that I should keep my eyes open. <laughs>
2: well, it made me think,
0: because I actually saw that happen one time in New York. I was in Central Park, in a nice part of Central Park. It wasn't a bad part of Central Park. There aren't really bad parts of Central Park, but there are parts that are nicer than others. And I'm going for a run, and it was several years ago. And I see this guy with a camera, and this guy comes up and just takes the camera from him. You know, it's this nice tourist, you know, fat, you know, happy tourist and just having his camera robbed and he's freaking out. And I had to think like, and I'm just on my run, you know, like just focused on my workout. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, I can either get involved and maybe get hurt or I can just keep running. And I chose to keep running. But now maybe what I would do is is just watch the situation unfold, call the police but stay at a distance, so I don't get hurt myself, and then go in and see if I can help the guy that was robbed, you know. But he was running after the robber, um, so I don't know if that would have worked. But, um, but the first part, staying at a distance and calling the police, that definitely could have still worked.
1: I haven't thought about this for many, many years, <laughs> but I've got a similar story. Oh this wow! This one. This one is in the uh, Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, In a, um, a jewelry shop in the hotel. And that I and a friend had wandered in there, just wandering around to New York. And there was a robbery scene right there in front of us, except that it was much more like shoplifting but this guy grabbed a bunch of stuff and ran out of the store. I had—I didn't even have to think about it. I chased him down. Hmm. And I caught him about a block or so away. Within a seconds, the woman had already called the police. The police arrived. She arrived, but she was so grateful that here this poor southern hillbilly hick would, would chase out <laughs> somebody like that. I mean, he could have had a knife and stabbed me. He all kinds of stuff that's possible, you know. Yeah, yeah, and that's what so I was thinking. Would,
0: like, I don't know, does he have a gun? Does he have a knife? You know, like I'm—I don't want any of that. You know. <laughs> mhm.
1: <laughs> so that uh, that one worked out pretty well. Um, uh, the uh the store, actually, she was the owner of the store, and she was really grateful
2: mm-hmm.
1: that we had done that, and so she gave a nice prize. Huh. That's I great. Mhm. So anyway, I hadn't thought about, that was, gosh, that was 50 years ago. Wow. But when you're talking about chasing down a robber in New York, I've been there, done that one too. (laughs) (laughs) So we have covered the points about beauty is actually used as a tool ...for coercion, that that's what beauty is. It works on the fact that it's supposedly attractive. That's what beauty is all about. So when they talk about beauty is in the eye of the beholder, who says that is P.T. Barnum.
2: Mm. Mm.
1: That's the P.T. Barnum phrase. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Let's make it beautiful so we can sell it to him.
0: The great-grandfather of Donald Trump... (laughs) (laughs)
1: lineage (laughs) Mm -hmm. so much for beauty and yet is a big deal it's part of western culture is for us to define beauty. I mean that's what fashion is all about can you imagine what would happen to the clothing industry if we didn't have fashion and if people just wore the same thing because it was still wearable It uh, wouldn't uh, exist. (laughs) Don't you think that in fact right now on the planet Earth already have been manufactured some of us in landfill, but already even without the landfill, there is enough clothing for humanity for the next 100, maybe 200 years?
0: I would believe it. I believe it. You know, and it's funny too on that topic. Oh, sorry. Go on.
1: We don't have to grow any more cotton for a long time. We don't have to do any more polyester. We just close those businesses down and just wear the old clothes.
0: Right. And I think, you know, part of the reason we do is the the, the advertising and the brainwashing and all of that. But there's also the, um, the seeking of novelty and the restlessness, right? Which mm-hmm. is people want to wear something new, you know, regularly. And that is a big part of it. It's just that restlessness of, oh, I don't have something new. So I'm not, but that gets tied into the peer pressure mm-hmm. of everyone else wanting to also have something new. And so you also have to do that. And so part of it is you want novelty yourself, but part of it too is you, uh, you're you doing what everyone else is doing. <laughs> so the society is pressuring right. you. Right,
1: keeping up with the Joneses or keeping up with, in general, whoever.
0: Right. Totally. Keeping and, up. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, when I was talking to my dad about beauty, I sent him that song that you sent me about the the Ain't Nothing Gonna Improve Your Life Like a Happy Wife or, or Ugly Wife or oh. something like that.
1: okay. Yeah, uh, let's see if I can that. get it. Uh, you'll be happy for the rest of your life. Don't make a pretty woman your wife. Yeah, that was it. It's yep. my <laughs> personal point of view. Don't let a pretty woman marry you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Be careful where you sing that song because a lot of women don't like it. And if a husband sings it in public where his wife is listening, he's going to have a black eye when he gets home.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I don't think I would share that one with my girlfriend.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but share it with your dad. Right. That's it. That's it. That, That the woman is trying to be beautiful and that she will not stop once you're married. It's a habit of being right. attractive.
2: Right, and that's that. Fine. By the
1: way, if you listen to the lyrics of the song, that's actually in the lyrics of the song.
0: Oh wow, cool! Yeah, listen to the whole song, and that, I think that was yeah, that was in it.
1: Yeah, that's that's the reason why I sent the version with the lyrics so that you could see what the whole lyrics were.
0: Oh, great! Yeah, I, I love with the lyrics. It's it's great. That's, that's the right way to send songs.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Unless they have a really cool music video. And sometimes they have that, too, but this one I don't think had that.
1: <laughs> well, uh, these these songs are actually educational. It's a, it's a nice, happy little song, but it's also educational. It's correct that if you intend on having a trophy wife, you're going to have trouble. You you're might, not going to have competition.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're going to have it, that. That's for sure. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. But is it going to be uh, a problem or not? And and that's the Dama, you know, is, are you going to get upset about that? Or are you going to be, you know, like, like, it's funny. It's my girlfriend. Like she said, you should be proud, you know, and, and it's like, yeah, I should be, you know. <laughs> Although
2: pride is That's why not they call purposes. them trophy
1: wives, exactly. Yeah. And the and and the idea then is is that the guy doesn't think enough of himself, and so he's had to adorn himself with jewelry, trinkets, maybe arms, maybe a woman who's beautiful, just to prove to himself how okay he actually doesn't feel.
0: Well, it's interesting, you know, one thing I, my girlfriend and I say a lot to each other is I accept you, you know, and I say that to her all the time, you know, cause I think it's really important. Cause it's like, I don't really care. Like if you do all this makeup and stuff, like, yeah, it's nice, but you know, like whatever, you know, like I just accept you, you know, if she makes a mistake, I just say, Hey, I accept you, you know, and she does the same to me, you know, and, and that's great. That's really wholesome, you know, because acceptance is, is a lot better than striving and all of this.
1: Well, one of the things that I could say about Thai women in general, not 100%, but basically Thai women in general, makeup is a toy to play with. Mm. To wear makeup in the West is a very serious business.
2: Right.
0: In South America, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> serious stuff. Well, I see, and one thing you said to me that was funny. Oh, sorry, go gone
1: Well, one of the things that I was mentioning is, or about to say, is, is that if you are in a uh, particular kind of situation, the people who are most likely to be very heavily made up are little girls under the age of ten. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they're made—they're made up. Because they're dancers and they're in makeup and all that kind of stuff, and they really, really go wild with it.
0: I think the most likely would be a female politician, and the second most likely a male one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so I mean, if you look to... at some of these people. Yeah, like like Nancy Pelosi. Like she's 80 years old. You would never guess it. You know, you would never guess it, looking at her and how she carries herself, et cetera. But just looking at her, just looking at a picture of her, you would never guess it. But she has so much makeup and plastic surgery that she really doesn't look that age. But she is 80 years
2: old, you know.
1: And that's politics. (laughs) Well, let's see if we can get this back on the dhamma somehow or another. (laughs) In, In the sense that it's part of the society that Nancy Pelosi would do that as opposed to allow herself to be old and happy. Right. Who is she trying to keep up with? And what's the point? I would say that it's much more out of just an old habit. She's doing that because she's always done it, and she never does really look at the rationale, the reason behind it. Just like the example that I use about people putting too much salt on their food. I have seen many places, especially when I was a child in the South, that you order food in a restaurant, And when the food is served, the first thing they do is they start heavily salting it before they ever taste it.
0: You know what Ross Perot said about that? What? He said he would never do business with someone that puts salt on their food
1: before tasting it. Well, it must be common then. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) But I imagine that Ross Perot was actually just uh, hoodwinking because he would very much prefer to do business with people who don't listen to what he said or don't taste what he's doing. They just buy it.
0: Sure. I mean, he was a really shrewd guy. Like his rationale he gave for that was that that, uh, people that do that will never be happy with anything. They're never going to accept anything. They're always going to try to improve everything. And you don't want to do business with someone like that because they'll just drive you crazy. And so that was his well, rationale.
1: Yeah. I, I use SALT as an example, and it doesn't even fit as a good example for many people. But you can use other examples and begin to see a pattern. And that is is that the same thing is true with gun ownership.
2: Hmm. Oh, I lost you for a second. Okay, you're back. I think okay, at least your yes. audio your audio's back. your yeah.
1: screen is gone. Oh
0: now you're, now it's good. Oh.
1: Yeah, so gun ownership, this is exactly the same. The the people who were most likely to have a gun as an adult had guns or were around guns when they were children. This same thing is true with alcohol and tobacco and the kind of clothes that you wear. All kinds of stuff that we do as a child, including a lot of our own mental habits, are picked up when we're children, and then we go along with them to get along. That if it worked when we were a child, we continued to do it. So salting the food, we did it when we were a kid, and so until we learned the danger. And once we learned the danger, for instance, people don't use near as much salt nowadays as they did 50 years ago, or, or 70 years ago. Back in the 1950s, people used salt a lot. Now that they know that it causes um, um, uh, high blood pressure and other things, and the doctors have been uh, telling people to not have salt, about the same thing happened about eggs. That at one time, they thought eggs caused cholesterol because eggs had cholesterol. Then they found out that no, the eggs and cholesterol, the, uh, the cholesterol in eggs just flushed right out. The cholesterol in the body doesn't come from eggs, it comes from cholesterol manufactured by the body. But during those years, sales of eggs went way down. People stopped eating eggs because they saw that a new danger in them. Tobacco is another one. That when people see the danger in tobacco, well, some people, for some reason, are not able to see the danger in guns. Mm-hmm. They see, in fact, guns as protection from danger right. rather than dangerous themselves. And yet the, uh, the reality is, is that guns are actually dangerous. The likelihood of someone getting killed in a house that has guns is higher than the likelihood of someone who lives in a house that has no guns.
0: Sure. Actually, the tobacco thing, I want to briefly touch on that. So, you know, I used to smoke cigars, and I still do every now and then on occasion. But, you know, my dad, he's, are you there? Hello? Okay, cool. So my dad, he's really into this Nicorette gum. He used to be a smoker, and then he started chewing the gum. He's just been only chewing the gum for a long time. So he's been giving me this Nicorette, and I, I enjoy it because it give, I feel like it brightens my sati. You know, and it gives me more verbal dexterity, you know, my memory is a little better, you know, et cetera. So I enjoy, I enjoy it, and I also enjoy it in our conversations even, because I feel it helps me bring out more that makes the conversation even better and more wholesome. You know, so I have a weird relationship to it. So on the one hand, I feel like it's bringing wholesome into my life. But on the other hand, it's nicotine, you know, which, which could maybe kill me someday
1: so well, I'm kind that's of the whole that out point. when you begin yeah. to see the dangers in it then you'll find an escape this is a major teaching of the Buddha it's in many suttas he talks about the gratification the danger and the escape that we do things because we get gratification out of it for instance anti-vaxxers many of them get great gratification out of being an anti-vaxxer yeah. but Now that the danger has gotten very big for some of them, they can't avoid the danger, and so they're getting the vaccines. But some people don't get the vaccine until after they get sick, and now they're in the hospital and they want the vaccine. The doctors say it's too late. You should have had the vaccine two weeks before you got the, the, the virus. Right. Okay, And so that's another example that fits with this, is is that people find gratification without seeing the danger, and so they continue those bad habits. And once we begin to see the uh, the danger in that habit, then we can change it. Just like you were having the thought in the beginning of this conversation, you had the thought of things can't be this good on and on that things have got to go bad, right? right? But when you recognize that that, too, is just another doubt, just another unwholesome thought, then it's really easy to deal with. But if we cannot see the danger in that, then we get worried about now what? Oh, no, I've gotten something that needs to be protected. How do I protect it? You've already lost it when you're having those thoughts. Sure, sure. (laughs) (laughs)
0: And, by the way, so it's almost one in the morning where I am. Could we switch to other topics?
1: Oh, okay. Well, let's go ahead and finish this conversation on the video, and we'll start something else. Is that what you're wanting? Yes. All right, all right. So goodbye. We'll see you in the chat. (laughs) All right, take care.
2: (laughs) Cheers.